0: Welcome to episode 136 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent writing crime fiction inspired by true crime FBI cases. Today, we get to speak to retired agent Michael McGowan, who served in the FBI for more than 30 years, Early in his career, while assigned to the Philadelphia Division, he worked major drug investigations. In this episode, Mike McGowan reviews a Pakistani drug investigation where he was falsely accused and investigated for the theft of $200 million, not a typo, of heroin and cocaine from a secured FBI evidence vault his reputation and integrity were temporarily destroyed by the false allegation. The actual person responsible was another FBI drug agent who was sentenced to 25 years in prison for the crime. Later in his career, Mike was transferred to the Boston division and participated in more than 50 FBI undercover operations He successfully infiltrated Italian LCN and Russian organized crime groups, Mexican drug cartels, outlaw motorcycle gangs, contract murderers, and corrupt public officials, all resulting in significant arrests, seizures, and lengthy incarcerations. Mike has been recognized at the highest levels of the FBI and Department of Justice, and domestically and internationally for his role as an undercover agent. He was an instructor at the FBI Undercover Certification School in Quantico, and he also served as an operational counselor for the FBI's Undercover Safeguard Unit, evaluating undercover FBI personnel for operational and psychological readiness. Mike McGowan has been qualified in federal court as a subject matter expert in undercover operations. After retiring from the FBI, Mike McGowan started the 7329 Group, a law enforcement undercover training and entertainment consulting firm. He is the author of Ghosts, My 30 Years as an FBI Undercover Agent, in which he recaps his more than 30 years of dedicated service to the FBI. Now, I know I probably shouldn't say this, but this is definitely my most favorite episode of all the ones that I've done. Because this is a story that I thought I knew, but in reality, I had no clue. The hell that Mike was put through is unbelievable. But please bear with me for just a short moment before we get to the interview. I want to make sure that you know That I just sent out my October reader team email. So if it's not in your inbox, please check your spam folder. I'm asking my reader team members to help me out with something. So please take a look at that email. This month, I review the movie American Hustle for FBI cliches and misconceptions. If you're not a member of my reader team, please go to my website or my Facebook page, and join us. Not only will you get a copy of the 20 FBI cliches reality checklist, but you'll also get the FBI reading resource, which is a list of books about the FBI written by FBI agents. I've added Mike McGowan's book to the list, and Michael Tabman, who was in last week's episode, his book is there, as well as my book's. Greedy Givers, and pay to play So I hope you join the reader team. And don't forget to subscribe to FBI Retired on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Now here's the show. I am excited to introduce my guest, Mike McGowan. Hi, Mike. Hi, Jerry. How are you? I'm doing great. I have to tell you that when I heard that you have a book coming out, I was surprised and I say surprised because you were in Philadelphia for a while working on one of the drug squads. And I knew that, you know, I was aware of, you know, an incident that happened in Philadelphia that was all cleared up and uh, then you left. And I had no idea all of the absolutely impressive, thrilling, exciting things that you were doing once you left. So (laughs) when I got the book and I started reading it, my my mouth was open the entire time. Tell us the name of the book.
1: The name of the book is Ghost, My 30 Years as an FBI Undercover Agent.
0: And why did you write the book?
1: Uh, That's a funny question. As you just said, uh, very few people actually knew what I was doing while I was working because the majority of my career was spent as an undercover agent. And obviously when you're undercover, uh, you really don't talk a lot about what you're you doing. When I did work with people, a lot of people would say to me, you should write a book. And I always wanted to try to write a book. Uh, I'm a big reader and I love reading and I thought I could give it a shot. And what happened was as I got near the end of my career, I thought about my children and my wife who had lived this journey with me for 30 plus years. A lot of times when I wasn't home or when I, or I left in the middle of the night and I decided uh, just before my retirement to number one, to thank my wife for putting up with me and taking care of our family. And two, I wanted my children to understand why I wasn't home all the time and where I was. So initially the book, was just a project that I wanted to share privately with my family, which I did. And then later for professional reasons, when the book received some interest, I also thought it was important from a professional level to explain what it is to be undercover and what the lifestyle is and how you live and work. Because for the last 30 years, I've had to keep my mouth shut. I've had to fly under the radar. And now there are agents, FBI agents, DEA agents, federal agents, local and state police officers out there working undercover who can't talk about what they do. Um, So I feel now from a professional standpoint, I can be somewhat of a voice for the undercover community. But again, the genesis of the book was to thank my wife and explain to my children what I was up to.
0: And I understand that. But half of the book, literally half of the book, the book is 300 pages and 151 pages are about an incident. Uh, I don't know what else, how else to, to, to no. say it, uh, no. that happened while you were in the Philadelphia office. And of course my mouth was open when I read the part about, you know, you being undercover uh, in, in, in New England, but my mouth was to the floor when I read about the stuff that was happening in the Philadelphia office while I was in the Philadelphia office, you know, I I knew generally what happened, but I had no idea the hell that you were going through because just like being undercover, you weren't allowed to talk about it. The rest of the office is walking around doing their cases when you are having this burden that you're carrying around and nobody knows.
1: It's a little more of a burden, Jerry. What had happened was, and that's what we're going to talk about here today. Um, So for your listeners, I think they're going to hear an unusual story today because maybe for the first time on your show, you're going to hear from an FBI agent who was actually accused of a vile crime investigated by the full force of the FBI. And literally there were discussions about arresting me, Uh, and searching my house. And none of this, as you said, you were in the office at the time, but none of this was well known because I was under specific instructions that I was not allowed to talk about it. So for a period of uh, over two months, I went to work every day living this just incredible nightmare. It's the worst professional experience of my life, I was an agent more than 30 years and there was nothing before or after that can compare to this. And as an FBI agent, as you would rightly know to have your integrity and your reputation and your honor destroyed is mind changing. And a lot of, a lot of what happened in my career in the FBI after this incident was a direct result of the incident. And I can Back, It it takes a little time to get to the incident, but I I need to set the stage and I'd be happy to walk your listeners through the experience and and what I felt at the time. And and we are now talking, let's see, it's now, uh, it's 22 years later and this thing still bothers me and scars me. And one of the reasons that I wrote the book was to tell this
0: story. And, And I can understand that. What happened in the office is by the time it became known, by the time people were talking about it, what they were talking about was the real person who was responsible for what happened. And I think all the focus went on him and none of the focus went on what happened to you, because I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't remember that you were the original case agent. All I remembered was the person who at the end was found responsible for this incident. When the truth came out, the focus went on that person. And unfortunately, I I, I take it there was no one who was there to, you know, to, to, it was like, okay, it's over, Mike.
1: Right. I'll get into that, and but so that your listeners understand, really there was no reason for you or other agents in the office to originally know. We were all doing our day-to-day work. You worked on one squad. I worked on a different squad. That's how the FBI goes about its business. But when I was notified, and uh, when I was notified of the incident, and then when I was the subject of the investigation. That's when it became very difficult for me to be in the office because, you know, people on my squad, at least, and and other people started to hear, you know, drips and drabs of it a little bit. And it was incredible to have to go to work and basically think that everybody had their spotlight on you and that you were being accused of this. I can only call it a vile crime is the way I can describe it.
0: Well, where uh, do you want to start? Let's get you, started. Yeah,
1: let's get started. I, I'll walk right into it. All of this, just for you listeners, again, and anyone who would like to challenge any parts of this story, this is all verifiable through court records. So what I am about to tell you is a true story. It's not made up. I went through it. Uh, it was an absolute living hell. The worst time of my professional experience and to the point where my wife, at the time, who's still my wife, but at the time of the incident, became so concerned that there was something uh, that was going to happen to me um, that she was worried, literally, for my well-being. So I'll I'll lay it all out. I'll tell you exactly what happened, and and we'll see what people think about it. All right. I'll go through a little bit of history. I'll I'll get to the main story shortly. But to open, I would say that uh in the spring of 1994 i was an fbi agent for seven years at that time and i was assigned to a colombian drug squad in philadelphia and i loved my job more than anything it is no greater honor to have been to have served as an fbi agent and i was just so excited to go to work every day but in my seventh year in 1994 Uh, less than two years after I was the case agent on a major international undercover operation in 1992, two years before this incident in October of 1992, myself and my colleagues on squad three worked a, an investigation out of um, Philadelphia that led to Karachi, Pakistan. And we targeted a, uh, international uh, heroin trafficker. And eventually it led to the seizure in October of 1992. We at squad three, we seized almost a hundred pounds of pure heroin at the Philadelphia airport when it was uh, sent to us by a Karachi, Pakistan heroin trafficker. And if you know anything about heroin Number one, it's very expensive. And number two, to receive 45 kilograms of heroin is is almost unheard of. It's a, it's a, a, an incredible amount of heroin. It was valued at the time at about $180 million. And we didn't spend any money to get it. We had convinced the heroin trafficker to send us, to front us the drugs, meaning send it. Uh, we would sell it and then we would pay him back. So in that October 92 period, after we seized the uh, nearly 100 pounds, uh, I like to tell people I was considered the golden boy at that point. I was the case agent. We made this huge seizure. It got tremendous publicity, tremendous uh, press at the time. And you have to remember, I only had five years in the FBI at that time of the seizure. In 1992, I was a five-year agent. So I was still relatively green and new. And at the time, people told me, hey, this is a career case. You're probably not going to get a better case the rest of your career. So it was the highlight of my law enforcement career at that point. I had been a police officer and a police detective prior to joining the FBI. So I, you know, I had been in law enforcement for, for a while, but this was a, a phenomenal case early in my career. So in 1992, we made the seizure. Now we'll fast forward to 1994 and the the incident we're to discuss. So by 1994, two years after the seizure, I was a seven-year veteran. I loved my job. I was happily married to a wonderful woman, and we had three small, healthy children. And my life was literally perfect. Uh, A loving family, healthy children, and a job that I love more than, than life. On April 10th of 1994, I woke up that morning, kissed my children goodbye and went to work. And by the evening of April 10th, my perfect FBI and family life had exploded because on that day, the FBI, my employer, accused me of stealing all of the heroin that I had seized two years earlier and some additional cocaine from inside the Philadelphia FBI evidence vault, the value of the drugs taken when you combine the heroin and the cocaine was $200 million. The heroin that, I, that we had seized in October of 1992, the 45 kilograms of heroin at that time was valued at $180 million. That was a DEA analysis. In addition, 11 kilograms of cocaine went missing from another one of my evidence box uh, in the evidence vault room. And that cocaine was valued at over 20 million. So you add 180 and 20, and you're at over $200 million worth of drugs were stolen. And I went from golden boy to public enemy number one in a flash. I was no longer the successful case agent. I was now the subject of an FBI internal criminal investigation. And it was made clear to me that the FBI wanted to put me in jail. You have to understand a little bit beforehand. So I'll I'll go through the, the case where we seized the heroin and then talk about the false accusation. In 1990, I had my first undercover operation in Philadelphia called Operation Eastload. And during that case, we built false compartments inside vehicles in order to have drug dealers utilize them and we would track them and then hit the cars or hit the money and make seizures of both cocaine and money. So that started in 1990. By 1992, a two-year investigation, we had identified the main supplier in New York City as a gentleman named Jose Gonzalez Rivera. He was a cell a cell leader of, a, of the Medellin cartel operating in New York City. His primary distributor in the Philadelphia area was named Cristobal Paz P A Z we investigated Gonzalez Rivera and Paz for 2 years and in 19 in early 1992 i believe it was in february we returned an indictment in the eastern district of pennsylvania against gonzales rivera and 10 other defendants in which they were charged in a cocaine conspiracy and distribution indictment and both Gonzales-Rivera and Paz were charged with what's known as the Continuing Criminal Enterprise, a CCE. A CCE is the most severe federal drug offense you can be charged with. It has a mandatory minimum of 20 years and a maximum of life. So both Gonzales-Rivera and Paz were facing life sentences because of the Eastload investigation. We later returned a superseding indictment in that case, and we ended up indicting approximately 40 subjects in that case. So we were very busy at the time. After the indictment, we made the arrest and we were preparing for prosecution. And it was at that time that Paz, who was, as I said, who was facing a CCE charge and uh, life in prison, he decided to cooperate. And he identified a Pakistani trafficker named Mohammed Salim Malik. Malik and Paz had been in federal prison in Kentucky earlier. And while they were in prison, they arranged this cocaine for heroin swap between the United States and Pakistan. So Pakistan was going to send heroin into the United States and Paz was supposed to send cocaine back to Pakistan. Well, we arrested Paz before they were able to put that plan in place. And after he was arrested and decided to cooperate, he told us about that plan So we basically piggybacked or intercepted that plan. And then the FBI became involved in negotiating with uh, Malik in Pakistan to do this exchange. So that undercover case started in, uh, I believe it was late 92. So now we have Paz who we originally had investigated. He is now cooperating with the FBI. And we arranged to complete this transaction. So as I said earlier, just to set the stage, so in October of 92, after a uh, unsuccessful load in earlier in August of that year, uh, in October of 1992, Malik did send us the requested heroin and that's the seizure on the night of October 15th, 1992. So we have this seizure in October of 92 the defendants, uh, Malik and a second defendant named uh, Shahid Kawaja, who was Malik's nephew, they were in Pakistan. And it took us about six months to have the Pakistani authorities arrest them. So in January of 1993, Malik and Kawaja are arrested in Pakistan. And we then start the extradition proceedings. So the U.S. government asked the Pakistani government to release these two defendants to face trial in the United States. I spent the rest of late 1993 preparing for their trials. We knew that they were gonna come over. We had to get ready for the trial. So I was on squad three at the time. And in late 1993, the majority of my work was preparing for this major heroin trial. In January of 1994, roughly a little more than six months after the investigation concluded with the seizure, Malik and Kawaja were extradited to the United States, and we arrested them when they arrived in Philadelphia. Now we're preparing for trial, and this brings us to the to the bad year of 1994. We start to debrief them through proffer agreements, where they can come in and speak to the government, and that evidence can't be used against them. They came in, and the word started to get out on the squad that Malik and Kawaja might plead guilty. The evidence against them was overwhelming. We had, I believe it was 135 recordings of the negotiations being set up and, tra- uh, and transcribed. The, the evidence was very strong. We had the seizure. So there was a, there was a strong likelihood that they would be uh, plead guilty rather than go to trial. Uh, until at least they plead guilty, you still have to plan for trial. So I was planning for trial. We're now into, I want to say, probably March March and April of 1994. I, I went to work one day doing my normal FBI duties, and at one point I heard another squad member talk about an audit that was being conducted in the evidence room. And it was just said in passing, but it, it keyed me into I needed to go check on my evidence that I had seized in 1992 for the trial of Malika and Kawaja, which was planned for the summer of 1994.
0: Had you had any contact with this evidence, this drug evidence since then, or did you just pack it up and seal it, make sure the chain of custody was great and stick it in there? We
1: seized the evidence on October 15th, 1992. We immediately returned to the FBI office and we, we placed, that, placed that drug into evidence on October 15, 1992. And for your listeners who aren't familiar with law enforcement, there's a strict chain of uh, custody. Your evidence has to be handled just so. And once you submit evidence, there's no reason to review it until you proceed to trial. So since October of 92, that evidence was up in the evidence uh, vault room in Philadelphia. So I was, I was within a month or two of the trial, and it's natural at that point that you would go and make sure that your evidence is available if and when it's needed for trial. So on that day, that fateful day, and I believe it was late March, early April of 94, I went up to the, I was in the squad area, completely normal, everyday work, something I had been doing every day for seven years in the FBI. I heard another agent talking about an audit up in the evidence, and I said, it's a good time to go check on my evidence. I went up to the evidence vault, which was basically about half of the uh, floor on the, I believe it was the eighth floor in Philadelphia at the time. And there's a procedure when you go in to observe your evidence. And when I spoke to the support employee, I could tell initially that she was either preoccupied or distracted. There was something odd about her. I had known this person for a while, and they just acted a little bit abnormal, which, you know, I just thought they were having a bad day. But they allowed me into the evidence room. And as I walked into the evidence room to try to locate my evidence, I saw two other support employees, one of whom I was very friendly with. I saw them look at me cross the room and speak to a gentleman who was dressed in a, a white, uh, white shirt and tie, uh, a gentleman who was not from the Philadelphia division. I knew everybody in our division. So there was somebody in the evidence room who wasn't from Philadelphia. And uh, I had been in the FBI long enough at that point to realize more than likely that was somebody from FBI headquarters as I told people later, he had FBI headquarters written all over him. And I saw these two employees whisper to him. And as I said earlier, I had been a, I had been a police officer before as an FBI agent. And there's times that you trust your instincts. There's times that you have uh, certain feelings come into play that you trust. And when I saw them whisper to that gentleman, the hairs on the back of my neck stood up. I don't know why, but I immediately sensed there was an issue, and at that time, I was not the politest agent in town, and the gentleman turned to me, and he said, what are you looking for? And again, this wasn't a gentleman from our division, somebody I didn't know. He was in our evidence vault, so I responded uh, rather abruptly, challenging him what he was doing there since he wasn't a member of the Philadelphia division. And that gentleman looked at me and he said, you need to go see your SAC, your special agent in charge. And Jerry, you can tell your listeners that anytime you're told to go see your SAC, it's not a good day. Uh, The SAC is the head of each office. They are the kings of their kingdom or her kingdom. Uh, They're very powerful people. And in our case, we had an SAC at the time that most of the agents really liked I was on great terms with our SAC.
0: He was definitely well-respected.
1: Absolutely. But it's like going back to grammar school. When you're told to go see the SAC, it's the equivalent of to go see the principal. There's a problem. Once the gentleman told me to go see the SAC, I was, I was in shock because I still didn't understand what was going on. But before I left the evidence room, I looked at the box that he was examining, and it had my file number on it, 281. Uh, 281 FPH 75449, he was looking at my evidence, which made me even more upset because why is this unknown person looking at it and then telling me to go to see the SAC? I went downstairs, very upset, very troubled. I went to find my supervisor at the time. Uh, He was not in his office. I couldn't find him.
0: And explain to everyone why you when to look for your supervisor, because that's important too.
1: There's a chain of command in the FBI. So when you're a special agent working on a squad, your immediate supervisor is called a supervisory special agent, an SSA, and they're your first line of supervision. Above the SSA is what we call ASACs, Assistant Special Agents in Charge. They supervise the supervisors and agents. And then the top pyramid is the SAC, the special agent in charge, who runs the whole office. So I had two levels of supervision between me and the SAC. There was my immediate supervisor and then my ASACs. Well, I couldn't find my supervisor in the squad area because I was trying to go about it the the right way. I then went down to the ASAC's office, my ASAC, who was also not in his office, and because I really didn't know what was going on and because of the relationship I had with our SAC, I went right into the SAC office, skipping uh, the two levels of uh, chain of command. And at the time, after I saw the gentleman looking at my evidence box, I said to the SAC, I walked in and uh, unannounced and asked to speak to him. And I told the SAC, I said, I don't know what's going on, but there's some... Um, and I probably used a choice word or two, but I said there's some pencil pusher up in the evidence room going through my evidence, and I don't need to be putting up with some foolish audit when I had a big trial coming up. And RSAC, who, again, I had an excellent relationship with, who was a great guy, and everybody who worked for him, I think uh, he was highly respected, He looked at me like I had never been looked at before by an FBI official. And he said, and this is a quote, he said, Mike, the trial is the least of your worries. And at that point, my body almost shut down because I now have the head of the FBI in Philadelphia telling me that I'm in some type of horrible trouble. When he said it, I literally didn't believe what he said. I asked him to repeat it. And he said, the trial is the least of your worries and in my book i said he had the look of a medieval executioner he was he was so stern and serious i had never seen the side of him it scared me to death and then he proceeded to tell me that there was that he had in, that he had information that the heroin seized in my case had been stolen from the evidence vault and replaced with baking soda that there was an internal investigation underway and I was not allowed to speak to anyone, any agents, or even he, he specifically said, even your wife about this, go back to your desk. I, I recall this clearly in the book. I don't even almost remember going back to the squad area. Once he said that, the way he looked at me, I couldn't believe at the time he was saying to me, you're, you're suspected of this crime. Now, I understood later, I understood that as case agent and as the lead agent who uh, sees the heroin, I would have to be looked at at some point. They would have to eliminate me as a suspect, but I certainly didn't steal the heroin. And I had worked tirelessly with my squad mates for more than two years to, to obtain that heroin. So that day is literally the day that my life in the FBI changed. I went back to the squad area. I couldn't talk to anybody. I felt literally like the walls were closing. I had a very bad reaction. I knew I hadn't done anything wrong. I didn't steal anything, but apparently others may have thought differently. And you have to understand, as I tell the story, I was only privy to a little bit of information where others in the executive management branch and on another drug squad had been working this heroin theft now for a couple of weeks or even a month. So I was being uh, told about this after the investigation had been started. I literally couldn't stay in the office. I'm not claustrophobic but I remember feeling like the walls were closing in. I remember feeling like my head was in a vice and I just had to get out of the building. And I I went down to the basement. I got in my FBI car and I drove around the city of Philadelphia aimlessly for hours. And I kept telling myself, you know, what is going on? What, what is this all about? Why did he say what he said? And that's how this nightmare began. Uh, I went home that night, um, backing up, I said earlier, when I was a police officer before I was an FBI agent, my wife and I were married, and I came home from uh, one of my police shifts one night. Uh, I had gone into a bar as a uniformed police officer and got jumped, and uh, I, got, I ended up with two black eyes and a separated shoulder, and when I went home that night years earlier with my wife, when she saw the condition I was in, she yelled at me for getting my my bum kicked, I guess, but it petrified her what I did for a living. And we kind of made a pact at that point that I would never talk to her about work. So after that incident, back when I was a police officer, I never talked about work when I was home. So when I went home this time, I thought about saying something to my wife, but what do you say to your wife? Hi, you know, hi, honey, how's the kids? You know, that heroin I spent two years chasing, well, the FBI says it's stolen and they think I did it. So I didn't tell my wife, which is again, a big part of the book. So I went home and I had to keep this stuff inside. So starting on that day, when the SAC told me that the trial was the least of my worries, every minute of every hour of every day, I went through this uh, accusation, waiting for something to happen. I was never told what was to transpire, I was never told uh, what their evidence was. There was, a, there was a criminal investigation, and I was one of the subjects being uh, investigated. So that led to the spring-summer of 94, where once the SAC notified me, I now knew that this had happened, but nobody else did on the squad. So the squad guys who I had been very friendly with and had worked with for years, they noticed, obviously they noticed something was bothering me, but again, I couldn't talk about it. Basically, I sat at my desk waiting to be told by either my supervisor at SAC what to happen next. And days and days went by with no contact. So with every, every day that went by, I had no more information and I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep It was just it was so overwhelming to me that the FBI thought for a second that I could have been involved in this. I thought I had been an honorable employee. I thought I had done everything the right way. And this was this was eating me up. And there was no I had no control over it. I couldn't be involved in the investigation. I basically had to wait to be contacted. Uh, This went on for a number of weeks.
0: Can I ask you what the status of the trial
1: was during this time period? Okay, and I was just getting to that. So the next time I was contacted by the SAC, which was probably about 10 10 days to two weeks later, I was brought into the SAC's room, and in the SAC's room was the United States Attorney at the time, the lead, the head of the prosecution office at the U.S. Attorney's Office. Uh, It was just the SAC and the U.S. attorney in the room, not my supervisor, not my ASAC and me. And my SAC instructed me that he had notified the U.S. attorney of the theft and that I was now being directed to go notify the line assistant, the assistant United States attorney who was handling the case. The assistant United States attorney who had the case was a very good friend of mine. Uh, He and I had worked on a number of drug cases in the past. We were very close. We spent social time together. And after that direction, I then had to go over to the U.S. Attorney's Office, again, by myself, no other agents involved. I had to go tell the AUSA what had happened and that I was under investigation. And then I had to add to him, looking him squarely in the eye, that I didn't do it. And he immediately dismissed that I would have anything to do with it, but to have to tell a coworker, a very close friend of yours, a confidant, that you didn't steal two hundred million dollars worth of drugs, that's not easy. But I told him, and I said, you know, your boss is is with my boss right now, and I'm just waiting for the next shooter drop. What was beating me up at the time was, I was waiting to be interviewed. I knew obviously I had to be interviewed, but I. I was waiting to be interviewed. I wanted to be interviewed immediately to express my innocence and tell them, I don't know who stole your heroin, but I didn't, but there was no interview coming. And the reason I, years later, I figured out, or I understood the reason that I wasn't interviewed was because I was the subject. They were looking at me. I then found out through a informed source within the office that the front office or executive management, they were drafting a search warrant to search my house. Now, at the time in 1994, my wife was home with three of our children, three of our, our young children. My, my kids were like uh, two, four, and six at the time. So I'm told through a somebody who wasn't supposed to tell me that I don't know what's going on, but the FBI is talking about searching your home. And because I couldn't talk to my wife, I couldn't prepare her if they came to our house. So you have to remember every night I'm going home with my family and my wife is looking at me like, you know, what's wrong with you? But I I couldn't tell her. I just couldn't. And again, I now have 30 plus years in the FBI. You have to remember, I only had five years in the FBI at this point. I was just green as green as grass. So whatever I was told, I did to the
0: T. Yeah, I I was going to ask you. I mean, so they told you that, but... I mean, you're in trouble anyway. So was the reason you didn't tell her because they told you not to or because you had this agreement and you really didn't know what to say?
1: I didn't want to tell my wife because it wasn't her problem. Even though she's my wife, she had nothing to do with it. Um, she, wasn't, she wasn't crazy when I joined the FBI to begin with because we had to move. And we, had, we had to relocate our children, uh, the normal things when you accept an FBI job. But I also, at five years, I took everything literally. And when they said, you can't talk about it, I couldn't talk about it, even to my wife, combined with I normally didn't, I wouldn't tell her about work anyway. That was the kind of agreement we had reached. And I didn't want to upset her. She was at home. She had nothing to do with the FBI. She's taking care of our children. But it was just, you know, she knew that there was something eating away at me. She made comments here and there, but I just, and, you know, now I would have done it completely different, but at the time, that's what I did. And she could tell it was just, I couldn't sleep. That was the other thing. I would try to go to bed, no matter how late I went to bed, no matter how hard I had worked out, I would go to, to bed and put my head on the pillow and sh- sleep would never come. So I'd wake up or I'd get up early in the morning and go into work and not having slept the night before. And this went on for weeks. And I, I know that I looked like hell. Everybody could tell there was something going on. And and by this time in the office, now this is several weeks after I was notified, I was getting the strangest looks. I would see people whispering. I would see people walking down the hallway and turn down a hallway. So you may not have known very, but some other people had started to hear things and the reaction in the office was horrible. I just, I couldn't believe that many people that I thought were friends had kind of heard something, and, and I was getting the evil eye, and, you know, that, that was tough to take. Um,
0: did anybody approach you to say, I'm here for you, I support you, or if you need to I'll talk? Get,
1: I'll, I'll get to that in one second, and yes, somebody did, but not until much later, but uh, I won't name him by name, but you and I knew that there was a a gentleman, an ex-Marine on the bank robbery fugitive uh, squad who was very highly respected in the office. He ran the SWAT team. When it had circled, when the word had got out that they were looking at me, he came over to my desk one day at work and I'll never uh, forget. And I thank him to this day in his booming voice, which only he could talk like that. He basically said in front of my whole squad, he said, I don't know what the hell is going on. Uh, but I know you didn't have anything to do with it. And he shook my hand and walked out.
0: And wow. I, yeah, I, I know was, exactly who you're talking about. He's actually been on the podcast. Yeah, I, I didn't know that story, but it, it it says, it describes exactly who he is. So um, it's well, great the, to hear. In the
1: book, you'll read him as, I quoted, he's in the book as Jarhead. And for our Philadelphia comrades, everybody will know who I'm talking about, but he can. <laughs> me with that voice of support and it literally couldn't have come at a better time. I still hadn't been interviewed, but people were giving me funny look. Like I said, it was just a nightmare because, and, and I didn't know at the time, the other thing I should point out, there was a second agent on our squad, another good friend of mine who was also being looked at that I didn't even know he was being looked at. So there were two of us under investigation on that squad And neither one of us knew about the other. We later talked about it, you know, decades later, we, we, we compared notes, but at the time we didn't uh, talk about it. So there were two of us under investigation and I can explain later why he was under investigation. I was under investigation because the evidence that went missing went went from my heroin case and my cocaine case, and the only agent assigned to both cases was me. So obviously that was a problem for me, but after Jarhead made that proclamation, the squad, I remember thinking, you know, here's somebody who's not hedging his bets or waiting to see which way the wind blows. He knows I didn't take it. I had been on SWAT at that point for four or five years, and uh, you know, he knew that I was that I wasn't that type of person. I went home one night, and what I what I used to do because of the pressure, because of the it was just an enormous amount of pressure is the best way, you know, you you head in a vice thing. I would work out like a madman. I would run and lift weights and just try to get to the point of physical exhaustion so I could try to sleep. And the other thing I would do when I was I wasn't very handy around the house, but I would try to fix things and mow the lawn and, and keep busy. So one night I was out mowing the lawn for probably the fifth time in the last five days. And my pager went off, and it was the SAC. And he said, we need to interview you. And I said, tomorrow morning, he said, no, get in here right now. So this is about 7 o'clock, I believe. And this would now have been uh, April of 94. And weeks and weeks had now passed since I knew what had happened, but I'd never been interviewed. And I went upstairs to shower because I was just coming in from yard work. I took a shower, and in the shower, I realized I may be saying goodbye to my wife and my kids and not coming home. I really believed that I was potentially going to be arrested. So my three kids were outside. you got to remember, they're two, four, and six at the time. My three kids were outside. I went outside and found them. They were out wrestling and playing, riding bikes with their friends. And I, I kissed each of them, and I said, I love you. And they all looked at me like I was crazy and they just went back to playing. And I turned around and I saw my wife was inside the door, inside the screen door looking out. And we made eye contact and she knew that something was going to happen. And I went and I gave her a kiss on the forehead. And I got in my car and I drove like a madman. Now I have like weeks and weeks of anger and craziness all bottled up. I drove like a madman into Philadelphia. And I remember thinking when I was driving, you're driving so fast, if you crash, people are going to think you killed yourself, and that's how your children are going to remember you. So I had to slow down and uh, obey the traffic laws, but I just wanted to get into the FBI and, and have my interview.
0: So let me just, uh, yep. uh, when you yep. left your wife and kissed her on the forehead, she knew yep. something was up. She knew you were going to the office, but she still had no idea? None. Wow.
1: Nope. But she knew, you know, we've been married now, you know, 30, whatever. She remembers that like it was yesterday. We talk about it frequently. Um, she really thought I might do something crazy. That's what she said. It was that bad. And again, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to get melodramatic. It, it was, it was my way of protecting her. It probably was the wrong way now that I think about it. But what was I going to tell her? The FBI wants to arrest me. I I didn't know what to tell her. So I went in for my interview and I slowed down and I made sure that I was under control. And I went in, I got to the FBI, I went in to see the SAC. And again, in a very strict and stern manner, he, he directed me to an interview room. And what happened when the investigation started, the original investigators, whether you're aware of this or not, or the rest of the Philadelphia office was, the original investigators were members of executive management, ASACs, and within the FBI, ASACs have been away from investigations for a while in order to get to their position. So they're not current investigators. They're more administrative and executive management. So when they had the investigation, when they wanted to search my house, when they wanted to discuss arresting me, they weren't conducting the Proper investigative steps, and I'll leave it at that. So, when I went into the interview room, I expected to see uh, some of the ASACs. And when I walked in, there were two, what we call GS 13s, senior street agents, two highly respected agents in the office who had excellent reputation as investigators. Uh, they both were assigned to resident agencies, satellite offices out of the main office. I had never met either gentleman but i knew of their reputation and when i walked in i remember thinking you know maybe this will work out because these guys know what they're doing but again and you'll see you'll read about this in the book i was so i was so angry upset whatever you want to call it that i couldn't control my behavior and i let loose on them they were completely professional complete gentlemen But the first thing they did, two minutes into the room, was they read me my Miranda warnings. And most of your listeners know what that is. Those are the rights provided to a criminal subject during the course of an investigation. And I had read Miranda to thousands of people at that point in my career. And to have your Miranda rights read to you is one of the most surreal positions you can ever be in. I I felt like it was an out-of-body experience. Wow. They're making me sign the Miranda, initial the Miranda, the same things I had done to Paz, Gonzalez, Rivera, Malik, you know, combined with the police and the FBI. At that point, I had arrested, you know, literally hundreds of people. That's what I did. I, I was the one supposed to read the rights, not have the rights read to me. So that, that Miranda warning given to me was another, like, body blow. It was like, how, how bad can this get? But it also verified to me. Legally, I was considered a suspect. They couldn't talk to me until I waived my Miranda. Now, I've been criticized later by a lot of agents that I went to those interviews without an attorney. Um, Two things. One, should I have brought an attorney? Probably. But one, I didn't steal anything. And two, I couldn't afford an attorney. And I was waiting to tell my side of the story. So when I went in there, uh, again, I was... I was less than professional and I regret that now. But I I was just enraged at that point. So when they started asking me questions like what squad are you assigned to, I answered in a way that wasn't professional because they knew what squad they knew everything about the case. They were interviewing me like they would interview a criminal subject. And I was deeply offended by that. I understand it now, but at the time it made me even more angrier and I I let them have it with both barrels. So you had basically whatever weeks and weeks and maybe a month, month and a half of anger built up. And those two gentlemen happened to be sitting there when I uh, had a chance to let it out. I was interviewed for about three or four hours that first night. And I remember driving home that night. I turned all the, by this time it's now midnight or so. And I remember rolling all the windows down, driving home and let the fresh air in. When I got home that night, I slept like a baby the whole night. It was the first time I had slept in like two months. But getting it off my chest, getting to say what I felt um, was was tremendous because, like I said, I went home and I slept like a baby that night.
0: Were you hopeful? Did you feel like, okay, guess, we're going to be able to turn this no, in the right no, direction?
1: No, not at that point. I was still like, this is crazy. But then when you think about it, and again, hindsight is is twenty twenty the the investigation should not have been that difficult to solve. It had to be an FBI employee. The evidence was stolen out of our vault. A stranger can't go in and get into our vault. So I remember thinking, you know, if I had, if I had approached this case as the investigator, the, the list of suspects is pretty much contained. So the first night I didn't, and I'll tell you why, because of the next day, why I didn't have the best feeling. When I went into work the next day, literally the next day, Um. I reported to work at 8 a.m. And they were, were, the two agents were there to interview me again. We went through the same Miranda warnings, the same signatures. And they started to interview me. And I looked like crap because I had been uh, going through this for months. They looked like a million bucks. They had gone home. They had put on new suits. And I'm looking at them like, you know, how can these guys be this refreshed? And I'm just, I'm dying here. But they interviewed me again and I thought it was going well and then abruptly during the meeting one of the agents asked me to if I would volunteer to give major case prints and for your listeners major case prints are a series of uh, fingerprinting um, in which different areas of your hands are fingerprinted and it's usually reserved for very serious crimes, bank robberies, etc. And to be asked to give to be asked to give voluntary major case prints is, again, is is a body blow that was hard to absorb. And what they did, and this is the only complaint I would have in anything they did during the process. They took me to our mug room, the mug room that I had printed and photographed hundreds of subjects. And they took my fingerprints and major case prints with the door open. So, Anybody in the office walking by the door saw the two senior agents fingerprinting and major case printing me.
0: And I can imagine in in the office that a lot of people started walking past.
1: Well, it got real busy out there, I can tell you that, Jerry, because you know where the the mug room was at the time. And you had to you had to work your way over there to walk by. And I'm sure I saw 20 plus employees walk by, including some who just stopped and, and looked in they weren't even hiding at that point. And I remember when I was, I was escorted back to the interview room, we had, to, we had to go through squad one, the old squad one was there. And I remember a couple of the squad one agents looking at me like, you know, sorry, see you later. So word spread that day. I remember I had several people tell me later, the word spread that day when they printed me that I was gonna be arrested. Um, I went back to the interview room, continued the interview. But again, because of the major case, because of the embarrassment of being fingerprinted in front of my fellow agents in and, and office, you know, my mind was out there. I was back to the, I was back to another low point. Uh, the night before I had slept through peacefully, and now it was like, why are they taking my case prints? And you have to understand when I made the seizure in October 92, I'm the case agent. So I'm handling all the evidence. My fingerprints are going to be all over everything. Okay. So I couldn't understand why they were taking my prints. I later understood they took my prints in order to eliminate my prints from other people's prints. But at the time, and I wish to this day and I I had a conversation with them later and I believe they did it for an investigative reason. That's why they left the door open because on day two, if they were interviewing me and I was, in fact, the person who done it, maybe they thought that would jar me into saying something of a guilty nature. But because I hadn't stolen anything, there was nothing I could tell them. I went through another interview. This went on for weeks. By the time it was over, I had been interviewed with my Miranda
0: warnings more than 20 times. So What? 20 That, times. that seems quite excessive. I mean, we we wouldn't, in in a normal case, if you interview somebody 20 times, it's because it's a proffer. They're cooperating and you're getting new information. You're not going over the same thing over and over again.
1: What I believe, and again, I can't answer for you because I wasn't uh, aware of their intention. What I believe now, years later, after everything took place, I I think they believed me after this, I think they believed me the first night. I think they, was, they were believing me in the earlier interviews, and then about halfway through, I think they were interviewing me to help their investigation because I knew more about that case than anybody. It was my case. So, and again, I can't uh, express enough how professional and competent and respectful they were. They did a incredible job to the point that when this was all over and done with, I wrote letters of thank yous to both of them for for their investigation. So I have no issue other than leaving the door open, which you'd have to ask them. I don't know why that was done. I have no complaint with what they did. And I believed, and they actually said this to me at one point, I was being interviewed to help their investigation.
0: Now, one, one of, the, one of the, the people that you're talking about ended up being my supervisor And, uh, yeah, he's a great guy. So I, I understand, you know, you, you having no hard feelings for them.
1: No. And at that point, you know, again, now I I'm looking back 30 years later or 25, whatever it is, I would have done the exact same thing. I would have approached the interview exactly as they did. I think they did a textbook job and they solved the crime. And we'll get to that in a second, but I I have no issues with them. Now, I do have issues with executive management. You don't search somebody's house and discuss drafting an arrest warrant unless you have evidence, and they didn't have any evidence. Other than the fact that I was the case agent, there was no evidence. So I had that conversation years later with one of the gentlemen, and it, it didn't end well. Getting back to the process, so now I'm being interviewed frequently But it's less and less confrontational every time, and it was about halfway during this. So if you if I was interviewed twenty times, it was about interview ten, I would guess, where I became convinced they were going to solve it. They were just too good at what they did, and I don't think it was that hard of a case to solve. But what I didn't know, and I now know, was as they were doing their internal investigation, Squad Two, the other drug squad in Philadelphia at the time they were conducting the criminal investigation on the actual correct agent who had stolen the heroin and they were closing in on him. Now I had no knowledge of that.
0: Was that something that was known in no. the office to anyone?
1: No. And I, I now know one of the, one of the original investigators later in his career became the uh, stack of the office in which I was last assigned. And 20 years later, he told me the whole story, which is just mind boggling. So I now know what happened, but at the time I didn't. So when this this parallel criminal investigation was going on, they had pretty much ruled me out, but I didn't know that. When I first knew who did it was probably sometime after my 10th interview, I went in one day. And again, at this point, I just showed up at the interview room. It was like becoming a, a daily occurrence. I'd just go. I wouldn't wait for them to come find me. They needed to talk to me. I went down there one day and about 10 minutes into the interview, they asked me for the 20th time, when was the last time I had been in the evidence room with that evidence? And I told them the night of the seizure and they slid a piece of paper across the table and asked me to look at it. And I recognized it as an evidence- uh, sign-in sheet, evidence vault sign-in sheet, something we had to do when we went in to review evidence. And I remember looking down the sheet and I got about halfway down <clears throat> and I saw some handwriting and then I saw my file number and everything clicked in a split second. I knew right then who had done the crime because it was an agent that I had worked with in the Load investigation. It was somebody on our squad I recognized his handwriting and he had signed in to go look at my evidence. Um, Using his name or your name? Used his name, but he wasn't assigned to our case.
0: And I look. Well, that's a clue.
1: Well, and I'll tell you why he did it later. I figured that out later. But um, what happened was they showed me it. I said right away, your agent is. And I named who the agent was and they didn't blink, but. Looking back on it years later, I gave them the name. It certainly wasn't the first time they had heard that name. But I knew that second, and I I got back enraged because now I'm angry at the other
0: agent. Did he, did he sign his name to your evidence?
1: He signed in a way that you couldn't really read the name, but it doesn't matter. The handwriting, I recognized the handwriting. And what I did was, when they showed it to me, I went back to my desk you're familiar with the government calendar books we were all assigned.
0: Yes, yeah, it those little vinyl black government calendar books.
1: As a anal retentive agent, I used to mark down everything I did every day. And the day that they went in to look at my evidence, I was at SWAT training 90 miles outside of Philadelphia. So I wasn't even in the division. Um, th- there, There's... There's questions whether he tried to make it look like my signature or his signature, it doesn't matter. Our handwritings were completely different. As soon as I saw his handwriting and he was looking at evidence in my case in 1993, <clears throat> long before Malik was even in the United States, I knew it was him. Um, and I, like I said, I got enraged again. Uh, I had never had a problem with this agent. I don't know to this day I don't know why he decided to point the finger at me and a second agent. Um, but when I when he stole the cocaine, the only agent connected to both cases was me. He was not assigned to the, the Malik investigation so there's no business there's no explanation of what he's doing in that evidence room. And what we later, surmised was when he heard, as I told you, when Malik first came to the country, there was talk that they were going to plead guilty. And we believe, he's never said this, nor would I ever bother to ask him, but I believe when he heard that Malik was going to plead guilty, he stole the evidence and replaced it with baking soda because he knew it would never be examined again. And per FBI policy, it would have been uh, incinerated without ever being checked again. He took a calculated risk and he lost.
0: Wow. I, I keep <laughs> saying, I keep saying, wow, because as I had mentioned before, when I read the book and as you're telling the story, my jaws is, is hitting the ground because, you know, all of this stuff I, I didn't know.
1: No, and, and nor should you. And, you know, it's not as if you were not in the loop. This was confined to a small group. The only people who really knew what was going on were the two drug squads. One, because the heroin disappeared from our squad and squad two had the investigation. And executive management obviously knew. But other than that, the only other people who had an idea were the SWAT people because the corrupt agent, myself and the second agent under investigation, we were all assigned to the SWAT team at at the time. So they knew that the SWAT team had started to hear the same information I'll tell one more story that you'll appreciate. So now that they have an idea that it wasn't me, it was the corrupt agent, they couldn't arrest him immediately because they still had to collect evidence. And that corrupt agent was a firearms instructor for the Philadelphia Division, which means he helped supervise when we would go to, go to the firing range. And he was still uh, working the line. It's called working the line when he stands behind agents to monitor their shooting when he was walking the line a senior agent went out after his after it became somewhat known in the office that he was the correct agent a senior agent went out to firearms and that corrupt agent was walking the line and that agent left walked away and went into executive management and said that guy can kill us all from behind anytime I'm not shooting until he's gone so once that happened, I think that's when everybody in the office, probably for the first time, heard about who actually did that crime, and he was arrested probably a week to 10 days later.
0: And uh, I can tell you, that's, that's when I learned about it, and I've admitted this to you, that the agent was somebody I considered a friend, somebody yeah. that I had been very friendly with, and I was in shock. I, I didn't know what you were going through, but now I'm, now I've learned that somebody that I considered a friend has now been, has been accused of doing this, uh, this terrible crime.
1: Two things that I'll finish with is when they were getting ready to arrest him, they called down to the squad and asked me to go to the conference room. I went into the conference room and the SAC and, The same ASAC who had accused me of this crime, he said to me, hey, we need your help. And I said, excuse me. He said, we're going to arrest the corrupt agent and we need your help. You're on SWAT and you worked Eastlode with him. And these were the same people that six weeks earlier destroyed my reputation and my integrity. And now they're asking me to help them. So that that's always been a sore spot. Um, But again, he But Did you do it? Yes, I did, because he needed to be arrested. So we completed the investigation. I helped the two main investigators clear up some, you know, you gotta remember, we we have to tie this to the investigation. And, you know, later on it was, evidence was collected. His fingerprints were on the inside tape of the kilos that I had seized. He wasn't there that night. He wasn't assigned to the case. There is no explanation why his fingerprints are on the inside of the tape unless he stole it. On June 2nd, 1994, I was called into the SAC's room and I was told not to report to work the following day. And I don't know about you, but I've never been told not to go to work. And the SAC explained they were going to arrest the corrupt agent the following day and he didn't want me present because he thought I might create a confrontation. So I didn't go to work the next day, and they arrested him that evening. They brought him into the FBI, where he confessed to the entire crime. He said he had acted alone, and that he had intentionally pointed fingers at other agents. And as a result of his interview, the FBI in Kentucky recovered about half of the missing dope in his grandmother's washing machine. Wow. I believe there was 28 kilos of heroin and 65 or $75,000 in
0: cash. Did they ever find the rest of it?
1: The rest of it was sold to drug dealers. Wow. He's a convicted drug trafficker who spread that poison throughout at least the Philadelphia area.
0: We didn't even talk about how the corrupt agent was caught and the things that he did to you know point the finger in and in the direction of the second agent that was also wrongly accused. So uh, I'm I'm just excited that people are going to be able to hear a little bit about this case in this interview and be able to go out and get the book to get all of the the details because this is a fascinating life story and I want to thank you for sharing some of that with us today.
1: I don't know how much time we have left, but again, I'd like to make sure that your listeners understand what happened as a result of this case. Do I have five or 10 more minutes?
0: You have as much time as you need to complete the story. This will just be an extra long episode.
1: What I want to make clear to your listeners is that after this horrible event, after the FBI treated me like a criminal subject, I had two choices at that point. I only had, like I said, seven years in the FBI I had to do at least another 13. So I had to decide, you know, do I go into the corner of the room and crumple up or do I work even harder to prove them that they had made a mistake accusing me. And what I chose to do based on the way I was raised is to fight back even harder. So what we did in that case, after the corrupt agent was arrested, Obviously the court case against Malik was affected. We had to notify the defense of the heroin theft. But what we ultimately did, and I was driven to do this, was we took that opportunity and we flipped Malik, meaning we got Malik to cooperate with us based on the evidence theft by the corrupt agent. And we started a second investigation of heroin uh, trafficking from Pakistan We launched a uh, second undercover operation in January of 95, about six months after this horrible event. And we targeted a major trafficker in Pakistan called Ayub Afridi Khan. He was one of the largest traffickers in the world. But because we were able to get Malik to cooperate with us under the story that his evidence had been stolen and he was going to be released from custody... He cooperated with the FBI, and we eventually made a second heroin case using Malik in the stolen heroin story. We made a second heroin case that in January of 96, in uh, Miami, Florida, we seized another 50 kilograms of heroin. That heroin was valued at over 200 million. So you had the original heroin seizure in 92, which led to the Awful events of '94, but culminated in another successful FBI undercover operation in 1996 with the seizure of over 200 million dollars. So, between the '92 seizure and the '96 seizure, we seized over 400 million dollars worth of high le- high purity heroin and cocaine, and we did that without spending a dollar of U.S. currency. So I want your listeners to understand, even though that, that was the worst time of my professional life, what drove me both in the next case and the rest of the cases I did that are uh, contained in the book, from that point on, every day I went to work, I wanted to prove to the FBI that they made a mistake by thinking I could be somebody who stole drugs.
0: But Mike, you know, you're saying that in such a casual way that you, know, you wanted to prove yourself, but you went beyond just proving yourself. I mean, and, and in the book, you used the term that the FBI doesn't keep a scorecard, but you may be the only person that was able to infiltrate the mob as an undercover agent twice. And, and you worked on so many other undercover cases. And so it, it's not like you just, you know, went, to another level and, and, and started working and, and making great cases, but you put yourself in harm's way as an undercover agent. And, and most agents in your case may have continued accepting a paycheck, but they would have been what we call in the Bureau an, an empty suit, disgruntled and sitting you know, at their desk doing as little as possible because of the anger and the resentment they would have felt towards the FBI.
1: No, I, I appreciate those comments. It was just—it was—it was just important to me and to my family. And you got to remember, I thought I was going to be arrested that night. I went in when I kissed my children and my wife goodbye. My family never knew about this until I wrote the book, and I gave that to each of my family members uh, two or three Christmases ago. And to that day, my family had never heard that story, so they only—Wait a minute.
0: What? A- what about your wife? It, was there a time that you did tell your wife? Yes, after
1: after the corrupt agent was arrested, I told my wife that night that I didn't go to. I told I wasn't allowed to go to work after they arrested him. I told my wife, and she wanted me to quit the FBI on the spot, but I, co- I couldn't
0: do that. I couldn't afford to do it. Yeah, I, I do want to say um, that people need to understand that spouses including mine are not necessarily great fans of the FBI because no. of the commitment that right. the agents give sometimes over their families to to the bureau i i never discuss what i what i did in the fbi or, or what i was doing in the fbi with my husband he's never listened to any one of these podcast episodes you know he doesn't really care that much about the fbi
1: exactly and that's my point and that's why we had that agreement early on when I was a police officer. And as I said earlier, the primary reason I wrote this book was for my family and to thank my wife. My wife literally raised my children while I was off playing cops and robbers for 30 years. So it's a tremendous burden for the spouse of somebody in the FBI. We don't work normal hours. We, we go to work when the phone rings. It's hard to plan vacations, holidays, et cetera. And having gone through that event, She didn't know why I would continue to serve in the FBI, but I needed, I literally needed to make a living and I wanted to show them that I was better than what they were. I was better than how they had treated me. It was very important to me. A lot of people have made comments about some successes I've had later in my career. Everything goes back to that event. Everything I've done after that has been driven by that anger, resentment, bitterness, whatever you want to call it. And... I think a lot of people now who didn't know me well understand a little bit why I am the way I am within the FBI because of that event.
0: So how do you feel about the FBI? I'm I'm not sure how you feel about the FBI as an agency.
1: I'll make it crystal clear. I love the FBI. The only thing I love more than the FBI is my family. I love the FBI. I miss it every day. And why? Because it, it's the it's the greatest honor to have served in what is, in my opinion, the best law enforcement agency in the world, and we do incredible things.
0: But what about what they did to you?
1: I have to I have to put that in perspective. Now I've worked on hundreds of other cases. I've worked on nine eleven, I've worked on Boston Marathon bombings, I've worked on other uh, high profile cases that the FBI just shined through and for the, for the exception of a few misguided individuals, no one more than the corrupt agent, but also the way I was treated, um, I can accept that now because I've seen the FBI at its worst, that event, but I've also seen it much more uh, at its best, and I will go to my grave loving to have been an FBI agent, and especially an FBI undercover agent.
0: I I think if I could add for people who don't understand what you just said, and I've said this, I've said this line so many times on this show, but there is a line in the FBI and it is that you don't embarrass the Bureau. So when somebody does something that could bring negative light on the Bureau, that could hurt the Bureau's reputation, which has has been you know, created over 110 years of service to this country, then the knee jerk reaction is to punish that person. You know, the, the FBI, especially FBI management, sometimes can be like a critical parent, you know, waiting for somebody to mess up, waiting for somebody to do something wrong, because the reputation of the Bureau is so important to all of us. And again, if you do anything that looks like you're going to embarrass the Bureau, because that reputation is so important, sometimes people react before they have all the information. Would you say that's accurate?
1: That's completely accurate, but I want to make sure if I leave your listeners with nothing else, even though that was the worst professional moment of my life, if you take my 30 plus years of FBI service, it is the greatest job in the world. I've had a tremendous amount of fun, greatest friends to this day. I can't speak more highly of it. We're going through some, we're taking some punches in the FBI for the last couple of years. Uh, we have thick skin. You have to have thick skin. But when you have an event like the marathon bombings or the 9-11, you want the FBI responding. And I'll leave it at that.
0: We spent over an hour and a half talking about this, but... You didn't even touch on, you know, some of the important details of this incident. And then the last part of your career, working all of these undercover cases. So I really, really want everyone listening to go out and get your book. Again, it's called Ghost, My 30 Years as an FBI Undercover Agent. And I'm telling you, it is a can't put it down type of book not just because I had a connection to it and I wanted to know what happened, but anybody uh, would want to read this book and get a full understanding of what happened to you early in your career and the amazing way that you took that and created a phenomenal experience in the FBI. In a way, you know, we've, we've had this interview and we've concentrated so much on the first half of your career. I'm hoping that we'll have an opportunity. You know, you're very busy now promoting the book, as you should be, but I'm hoping maybe in a few months I'll have you back and we can talk more about that last half of your career and those undercover cases. Do you believe that your desire to start working undercover had a lot to do with the freedom of not being in the office under management's thumb?
1: I wouldn't say that was a driving motivation. It certainly became helpful as I went along in my career. The reason I worked undercover, and, and your listeners should understand this, my reputation at the end of my career was I was a pretty good undercover. I was the worst undercover ever originally. I was awful, but I fell in love with it early on, and that's all I wanted to do. And you can get better at it if you work at it but i was no shining star when i first
0: started what kind of things would make you feel that
1: it was it was everything my mannerisms the way i dressed the way i talked i had no training we didn't have if you remember when and you came in before i did there was no undercover school or training at the time i learned undercover work from informants i had informants show me how to act the right way out on the street so i had everything i did was on the job training there was no training in place at the time in the FBI. But to me, and I don't like to use the word addiction because that has a negative connotation. So I use the word challenge. Working undercover to me is one of the greatest challenges in the FBI because you're viewed by your ability not to be recognized as an FBI agent. So if you have to conduct yourself in a manner in which you're not an agent, when you really are an agent, uh, that's not an easy thing to do. But if you work at it, And it becomes tradecraft, I'd like to think I got pretty good at it by
0: the end. Excellent. Well, I want you to know, and I want everybody to know that it's a coincidence that I have that I'm talking to you in two weeks from the time that this is posted, I am gonna be doing an episode with an undercover agent and the case agent at the same time. I think you know Ray Morrow.
1: He's a classmate of mine at Quantico.
0: I had him on with the case agent. And it's really fascinating to hear what both sides go through.
1: When I, my Early in my career, I was obviously a case agent. And then later I became an undercover agent. And what was clear to me now, but not at the time, was you really have to understand and be good at your role as a case agent before you can become an effective undercover agent, because you have two different missions, two different approaches. Uh, you have to remember which hat you're wearing when you're doing it. So I think the benefit of working those earlier drug cases in Philadelphia and even going through the nightmare, it made me a better undercover later in my career because I understood how cases are put together from start to finish.
0: So you've been retired now for over a year. What are you doing now? What I do now, Jerry, is I
1: realized I took the first month off after I retired and sat on a beach in Florida. and That didn't last long. So what I do now is I do I have my own consulting training company. I provide undercover training to both law enforcement and the military. And a separate part of my company does consulting and technical advising to the entertainment industry. I recently served as the law enforcement consultant on the movie Equalizer 2, directed by uh, Antoine Fuker and starring Denzel Washington and Pedro Pascal. So I divide my time between law enforcement, training, and uh, entertainment industry assistance.
0: Well, I have a a question then, because you know, one of my primary goals is to talk about the FBI and books, TV, and movies, and what they get right and what they get wrong. And and actually, that's what my third book that I'm writing now is all about. If you look at how the uh, entertainment industry portrays undercover agents, what kind of things do you think they get right? What kind of things do you think they take way too much creative license on?
1: Well, that's, that's a perfect question because one of the reasons I was hired by a major uh, director in LA was to bring authenticity to the assignments. They'll bring me on set or they'll send me a script and my job is to review the law enforcement portion especially when it involves undercover techniques and i can tell you probably eight times out of ten they don't get it right and it's my job to bring it back as close to reality and they appreciate that they do want to get it you know they have an entertainment value that they need to project but they do want to um, tell it as as best they can and the one thing i will tell you is that the hollywood industry is very respectful of the FBI and the work that we do. So it's been an eye-opening experience. You got to remember for 30 plus years, I've only been around FBI agents. I'm now starting to talk to non-FBI agents and it's interesting to get a different perspective on, you know, what they think of us, what they think of the law enforcement. So I'm enjoying it. This book here led to a second book. I have a a second book, which is a non-fiction
0: uh-oh, uh-oh. Am I going to have some competition?
1: Yeah, have a little competition going because I've created a fictional FBI character based on a lot of the characters we do in Philadelphia. And, uh, <laughs> There's a lot of them. <laughs> I'd like to think that that's going to be uh, a success. So I'm doing some writing, I'm doing some consulting, and I'm doing some training.
0: So I want to leave you with the last word. What would you like to say?
1: What I'd like to say is, again, uh, I can't stress enough that it's been an honor and a privilege to have been an FBI agent. It was an honor and privilege to serve in the Philadelphia division. Regardless of that event, I would like to close reminding people that if and when you choose to read the book, for 30 years, I kept my mouth shut and I flew below the radar as I should But now in retirement, I can speak on behalf of other FBI agents who are working right now, both case agents and undercover agents, who work tremendously hard every day protecting the public, and they receive no recognition, nor do they wish any recognition. But you have to recognize with all the uh, drama uh, in our current atmosphere that the FBI is working on your behalf every single day.
0: And that's the end of the interview. Back at jerrywilliams.com in this episode's show notes, you'll find a photo of Mike McGowan. There's a link to his book, Ghost, My 30 Years as an FBI Undercover Agent. And there are lots of newspaper articles with the true identity of the FBI agent responsible for that $200 million theft of heroin and cocaine. If you enjoyed the episode, I hope you share it with everyone you know, your friends, your family, your associates. And don't forget to subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. I don't have a crime fiction recommendation for you this week, but I want to remind you that I am doing a weekly blog post on the new CBS TV show, FBI. So you can check that out at my website. And of course, I'm recommending Mike McGowan's new book, Ghost, My 30 Years as an FBI Undercover Agent. And while you're at amazon.com, picking up a copy of Mike's book, I hope you'll also check out my crime novels, Pay to Play, and Greedy Givers. My plan is to never place ads on this podcast. Instead, I ask that you support the show by purchasing copies of my books for yourself or for someone you know who loves crime fiction. Pay to Play and Greedy Givers are available as ebooks, paperbacks, and Pay to Play is also available as an audiobook. This episode was sponsored by FBIretired.com, the only online directory made available to the general public featuring retired FBI agents and analysts interested in showcasing their skills to secure business opportunities. I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you